0: All right. Well, we're continuing to have some recording issues on Sunday, uh, so I'm re-recording this again in uh, my office. And um, Sunday, I continued with the Book of Ephesians, and as I've already said a, a handful of times, we're in a we're dealing with a portion of Ephesians right now that has to do with um, with things that I think are often misunderstood by Christians, uh, and I spent a couple of weeks trying to describe uh, what I think is going on in this section of Ephesians and how this isn't just a bunch of do's and don'ts of Christian religion and how this this isn't a list of ways to act acceptably before god or or steps towards uh, living a righteous life we uh We spent some time talking about understanding this this uh Portion of the Scripture as a whole, and if you missed, if you missed uh, those two weeks where I talked about under, understanding these passages, um, you might want to listen to those <clears throat> before going much further. Uh, you can get those off the website or whatever. But uh, last, well, I guess it was two weeks ago. We 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 talked from Ephesians four twenty five uh, about lying and and uh, speaking the truth, um, and, and we saw that lying is more than just fibbing. The lying that Paul is talking about here um, isn't just an exaggerated fish story or, or whatever uh, untruth that we th- we might imagine in our minds. The lying that Paul was dealing with, I believe, is primarily concerned with and, and, and related to what he had just spoken about um, uh, with respect to putting off one man, being renewed in the spirit of the mind, and putting on another. And so lying to one another in the body of Christ is when you bring anything of the man who is the lie, anything of his ideas, anything of his mind, his world, his relevance, you drag it into Christ where it doesn't belong and you seek to relate to one another according to that man and to what uh, perhaps was true of him but is no longer true of you who are born of spirit. Um, and I'm just trying to bring us uh, back up to speed here. So um, you could summarize it by saying that lying, the lying that Paul deals with, um, is when our relationships with one another keep alive what God has reckoned dead, or when it treats as relevant what, what God has buried, or when it isn't according to what God knows to be life. So you and I have to learn by the revealing of Christ what it means to relate in and by the life of God and anything less than the Lord's mind, anything less than that, anything less than that life dictating to us all that is real in him and what is true and what relating in, in uh, no longer according to the flesh but according to the spirit, what all of that is, anything less than that uh, is a lie. Anything less than the Lord's mind operating in the Lord's body amounts to a lie. Just uh, very much like anything less than your mind operating in, in, in your body, anything less than that would be a, to you a lie. And so don't misunderstand me. God's not mad at me or mad at you about bringing our ideas into Christ. It's not like he's going to strike us with a bolt of lightning or something. He, he just has an expectation. He expects something. He expects that as we are renewed in the spirit of our mind and as we put off one man who is the lie that we will be progressively learning to put off the false, as it says literally, and speak what the Spirit of truth is making real in our soul as to the reality of our salvation, as to the person and place and state of being that we have come to in Christ. That's God's expectation for His body, that we learn the truth and relate in the truth as the truth is in Jesus. Um and then so that was a couple weeks ago and then and then last week I did a little bit of a um something a little different on the boundaries of Christ and and um and so this week we're back in Ephesians and Paul goes on here in in this end of chapter 4 with several more statements about how he expects uh, the body of Christ uh well, what he expects to be happening in the body of Christ, what he expects to be happening in those in whom Christ is being revealed and in whom Christ is being formed. And so he continues with other things that should be falling away from us as the old man is uh, realized to be dead and gone, as, as we awaken to the newness of Christ as our life, as that becomes real in our hearts. Um, he Paul describes those things which should be passing away from us. And he also shares other things that should begin working in us as the life of Christ takes ground in our in our hearts, in our souls, through the, through the truth, through the light of that life, shining and, and defining all things in us and showing us what is real, making real in us what is real to him. And so I, I understand the next six or seven verses in Ephesians to be exactly that. Again, I know I'm repeating myself about these verses. I, I've said this uh, several times. It's just that we've heard, at least I have, I've heard these verses and these these kinds of verses taught so many times as works of the flesh. No one would ever call it that when they're teaching it. No one says, okay, now we're going to talk about works of the flesh. No, no one says that. But what it amounts to are the things that you need to do to please God or what. What? What? Uh, you are the source. You are the life behind these, these things, or, or that this is acceptable Christianity, or all these different ways we misunderstand. Um, what to Paul is the fruit of putting off one man and putting on another. So, I just say it again. I say it again uh, for those of us like myself who, who need to hear it. This is not Paul's expectation for righteous flesh. This is Paul's expectation for souls being transformed by the spirit of truth. Or in some cases, these are the things that have to do with appropriate and fitting stewardship of our earthen vessel, or stewardship of our time, or stewardship of our attention. Um, And I think all of this is involved in the next several verses. So I'm just going to read... Uh, A few of these verses here, and then I'm going to pick out a couple things just to to focus on for today. But I'm going to start in Ephesians 4.26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, uh, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. I think that with the foundation that we've laid for understanding these types of verses... um, most of this section should be rather self-explanatory. I think all these statements here fall quite effortlessly into one of the categories that we've mentioned already. Um, but there are a few things I'd like to comment on. And um, and for starters, and this may be all that we get to this week, but um, for starters, I find it, interesting that Paul talks about letting uh, the sun go down on our wrath and giving a place for the devil i um there was a time in my life when I thought I understood quite a bit about the devil quite a bit about um, demons and um, deliverance I used to read a lot of books on spiritual warfare I even took a class once at a Bible school on spiritual warfare and deliverance. <clears throat> and even more than that, I, when I, when I was involved in homeless ministry, uh, I um, got very involved in praying for people uh, for deliverance. And I did that for a number of years. And so um, <clears throat> there was a time when I was pretty sure I had a decent understanding of the whole demonic realm, I mean, at least compared... Um, to some, and and uh, I thought I um, had some somewhat of an idea of, of the enemy's um, game plan, his purpose, uh, his his method, um, but uh, all of that began to change when I started to see the Lord, and and it changed because when i started to see the lord i also started to see myself for the first time in my life maybe you haven't thought about it this way but you don't you don't know yourself you you can't know yourself and, until you begin to see yourself out from another set of eyes and so when i began to see the lord when i began to And and, and when you see the Lord, what you're really seeing is, is, uh, in a sense, you're seeing the Lord, seeing out from His eyes. You're seeing His perspective. You're seeing in His light. You're seeing it's His mind being uh, shared with you. And and so, for the first time in my life, when I began to see um, in His light, I saw my own heart. I saw some of my motives. I saw some of my nothingness and, and, and darkness and deception. You know, people think they know themselves. People, we think we think we actually know ourselves, but we don't. We, we think that just because we experience ourselves on a daily basis that that experience is according to understanding, and it's not. Just because you experience your actions and your desires and kind of observe yourself doing things, that doesn't See, that doesn't mean you know yourself. The natural man may know what you like, but he doesn't know why you like it. You may understand what you want, but you have no idea really why you can't stop wanting it. You observe yourself, but you don't really know yourself until you begin to see the Lord. And it's in his light that you and I begin to know and understand humanity for the first time. And I said that because when I began to see the Lord, I couldn't help but doubt my understanding of Satan. Because in, in seeing myself, I began to wonder what exactly Satan was really doing, or, or maybe you could say what he needed to do. Because it seemed to me that I was absolutely awful. in, in as I saw myself in the light, I saw that I was absolutely awful without any help from him. And I'd always thought of of um, Satan just as kind of as some external being that was trying to influence my otherwise neutral heart. But when I saw my heart, when I really began to see myself, it appeared my heart that is appeared anything but neutral. And maybe some of you can relate to that. I'm I'm going to try to explain some of this in a in a minute. Um, I'm just kind of trying to tell you something of the progression of my understanding of this. I, I remember thinking that only, only Satan could really exalt himself against the living God. I mean, you, you think that only Satan could take what God gave him and demand even more. Only Satan could operate in all things towards self-gain and, and with such defiance of truth and defiance of purpose, defiance of God. And then you see yourself clearly. You see yourself in the light of Christ appearing and you realize that you fit the same description. And I didn't really know what to do with that for a while. I mean, I didn't know how this view of myself affected my supposed knowledge of Satan and demons and spiritual warfare and and the enemy's plans and the enemy's purposes and his... His uh, agenda in the world and all of that. And, and, And I wondered if I had misunderstood the devil's job description, his purpose, his success. I wondered if I had misunderstood the devil's place. But again, you can't see any of that without seeing Christ. You can believe it. You can believe it as a matter of fact. You can believe that you're a slime ball. Lots of people believe that. Lots of people think that as a matter of fact. You don't know the degree to which you are opposed to the Lord until you see the Lord in contrast to yourself. It's kind of like that analogy I used to do uh, several years ago, the midget analogy. It's not my most politically correct analogy, but um, if you remember that that, um, analogy where um, if you lived in a land of little people, dwarves or elves or midgets or whatever, you would quite naturally begin to compare them to each other. You, you'd you say, oh, there goes a real tall guy and he's three foot four. And then you say, oh, there's a real short little guy and he's two foot five. And, because you have nothing else as a point of reference to compare anything to. But if a man of full stature appeared, if a man, a, a full six foot man or whatever, then at, at in in the presence of that man and, and faced with faced with that person, you could see for the first time what you really are. Well, that's how it was when I began to see the Lord. And, and I talk about that all the time, how I saw the absolute otherness and contrariness of all that I am in comparison to Christ. But it was then that I suddenly didn't seem to understand the devil's job description very well. It, it quickly seemed that the Adamic... Man did an amazing job at standing opposed to God all on his own and before you jump ahead of me here i'm not i 'm not suggesting that the devil is not real or that he doesn't have a job description or any of that. I certainly believe in, in the devil and a personal devil and demons and their work i'm just saying that some things changed in um, in my understanding when i when I began to see the Lord. And it was it was absolutely important, as it always is, for me to let go of my ideas, and allow the Lord to take me back to His foundation. Allow the Lord to take me back to His beginning. It was necessary to let to let even the ideas that had years of experience and bookshelves uh, full of spiritual warfare books to back them up i had to let those go too and you have to realize you never you never lose anything when you surrender your ideas to god you never lose anything except for lies truth is always always preserved in a view of the lord truth is always there it's it may not be that week or that month or that year, but whatever ideas you throw away, you'll, sooner or later you'll, you'll, you'll get truth back in, in a view of Christ. Sooner or later in the seeing of Christ, there is the understanding of everything. His light explains and uncovers all things. Well, I haven't got back a whole lot of understanding about Satan since I let go of everything. I, I can't—I'd I, be lying to say that I did. But there are a couple of things that I think uh, I have seen and that have become somewhat clear. And I'm going to just try to explain uh, those things now, having to do with Satan and having to do with his place. Very much having to do with the Scripture, I think, in Ephesians four twenty-six. It seems to me that Satan. Uh, along with demonic spirits have a place that they call home a place that they can influence and rule and have sway it's a uh, it's a territory it's a place that was given to them handed to them really without without really much of a fight at all and that place is the darkness of the adamic mind the darkness darkened heart of the natural man that is separated from the light of life. And you see, when I began to understand Satan's place, when I began to see that this darkness was his his abode, it started to explain my initial confusion when I began to see the Lord. See, I'd seen the filth and corruption of my own soul, and I'd wondered why Satan needed to do anything when my soul was this black on its own. But the reason that what I saw in myself so resembled the serpent himself was that when I saw myself for the first time, I was actually seeing the realm and the land, the place where Satan had distorted all things. When I saw myself in the light of Christ appearing, I didn't see the human soul as God had created it. I saw the human soul as it had become the kingdom of darkness. The darkened, self-seeking, truth-refusing mind of the Adamic man was the kingdom, was the place where Satan had great authority and where he had been greatly glorified. I know that's a really ugly thought. It's an even uglier view to, to face that. But remember the time that satan was tempting jesus in the wilderness after his baptism uh, satan took him out into the wilderness and was was um uh, tempting him in various ways one of the one of the temptations was uh, where he brought him up to a high place a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and it and it reads like this luke 4 uh chapter 4 verse 5 he says and leading him up into a high mountain the devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and the devil said to him I will give all this authority and their glory to you because it has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I wish then if you will worship before me all will be yours Now I'm not exactly sure how that worked I mean I don't know I you know who knows how Satan showed that to Jesus in a moment of time I'm sure it happened but I I uh, I my question is do you suppose that the kingdom that Satan ruled over was the buildings and the the land and the real estate and the infrastructure and the houses and the weapons and chariots? Do you think that's, that's what he was considering um, his kingdom? Or do you suppose that his kingdom was in fact the people that occupied those buildings and those houses and that land and those weapons and chariots? I don't really know what it means for Satan to have authority over buildings. I know there's talk of that type of thing in in uh, Christianity. I don't know much about that. But I have seen something of what it means to have my soul be the very expression of his seed. Now, we weren't created to be that way. We weren't created to bear the image of that seed. We were created to bear the image of another seed and to glorify another seed. But a place was given to the serpent. Authority was given to the serpent. Glory was given, handed over to Satan. Even as he said to Jesus, I will give all authority and glory to you because it has been delivered to me. Well, we're the ones that gave it to him. When man believed the lie, Satan, Satan inaugurated his kingdom on earth. He began a kingdom in souls, a kingdom where it was incredibly easy to hold sway over his subjects, a kingdom where it was simple to confuse and to deceive and to corrupt because there was absolutely no light for them to tell what was going on. There was no light or truth or understanding or perspective. We had forfeited light. We had forfeited truth. We had forfeited life when we believed the lie. And therefore, the house became the expression of the strong man who had taken up occupancy. I'm talking about the human soul here as a house. I'm talking about the human soul as a place, a land. There's a parable or two about where Jesus compares the heart of man, the human soul, as a as a um, as a house. Um, in one of them, he talks about uh, casting demons out of a man, and then the the demons come back and find the house ready to be reoccupied. Um, well, this house of the human soul came to bear the image and kind and increase and glory of the one who had authority over darkness. There's another uh, parable of Jesus' that he speaks of um, binding the strong man and plundering the house. And it seems to me that that's exactly what was needed after the fall, and that's exactly what the cross accomplished. The cross took the power from the strong man, and then Christ took the house. The soul of man then became the temple of the living God, and we become the habitation for another seed, another authority, another glory. But my point here is that prior to new life, prior to being filled in our soul with the light of his life, Paul calls Satan the spirit who works in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. The spirit who works in the sons of disobedience. I want you to think about another verse here with me. This is in John chapter 8, verse 44. This is the one that really hit me the hardest. John eight, forty-four. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. This is a real uh, interesting scripture if you if you think about it. If you notice here, it doesn't say that the desires of your father he makes you do you know you are you are of your father the devil, and the desire of your father he forces you to do it doesn't say that that's not how his kingdom works and incidentally that's not how christ's kingdom works either. I think we're really deceived about this again we think we think we know why we do something we we think we know ourselves people say all the time you know i I know myself and I do whatever I want. I, I wouldn't do anything if I didn't want to do it. Everything I do is, is something that I want to do. Okay, I'll grant you that. But here's my question. Why do you want it? Sure, you, you did what you wanted to do. You did exactly what you wanted. But why did you want to do it? What was driving you to want it? Why were you lusting for it? Why couldn't you stop thinking about it? Why were you so afraid not to do it? These are questions that we don't understand about ourselves. We know what we do, but we don't know why. We think we're free. We we actually think that we're free because we do what we want. But we never really back that up one step and ask the question, why do I want it? Where do these demands and desires and fears and purposes and lusts and and agendas and, and compulsions come from in me? Where do they come from? Can you hear what I mean? Jesus says, you are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. See, we think slavery is when somebody makes us do something that we don't want to do. And I suppose that, that that is a form of slavery. But wouldn't it be even worse? Wouldn't it even be a more horrible kind of slavery? If somebody if somebody not only made you do something you you didn't want to do, but somebody actually made you want something that was according to their will and their nature and their purpose. Wouldn't that even be a greater control over you? I mean, it's one thing to have somebody forcing you to do something against your will. That that stinks, but at least you still have your own will. But what if there was a slavery where your master had control over your action, actions precisely because he had control over your will? Now, that would be something a whole lot more subtle and a whole lot more deadly. The Jews were confused about this very issue. Jesus called them slaves. They proudly responded to him that they'd never been slaves to anyone. They were, in fact, free. Jesus told them, uh, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. That's That's an amazing answer. Because ultimately what he's saying is that you wouldn't sin if you didn't want to. And that is the proof that you are slaves. But they said, no, no, we're we're the slaves of God and we do what he wants. We're the chosen people. We're the Jews. Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me. In other words, if God were your father, you would want what he wants. You would love what he loves But as it is, you're sons of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. Can you see what I'm I'm getting at here? The nature of our bondage isn't really that Satan tells you what to do. The nature of our bondage to Satan is that his nature works in our darkness, making us want what he desires, making us want what he is. It makes us expressive of his nature and his way. And that's why anything that we do people don't like to hear this, and I don't particularly like to say it, but it's still true. Anything that we do apart from the light of Christ's life is evil. It doesn't matter what it is, because what makes it evil isn't the thing itself, isn't the action. Man can do many good things. Things I mean things that are good as things. But things that are still evil Evil at their source and at their motivation and at their fountainhead. See what you do. What you do is just—it's like a—it's uh, like a thin layer of cellophane over over an ocean or something like that. You know, you only see the top layer. You only see what's at the surface. You don't see the ocean of 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 motivation and 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 desire and, and purpose and 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 the depth of depravity and self obsession that is motivating everything that we do that's the kingdom of darkness that's the nature of the spirit who works in the sons of disobedience and it's exactly the opposite it's it's the same thing but on the other side of the of of the coin when it comes to Christ we think that Christ works in us to tell us what to do i mean almost everybody Almost everybody universally assumes that. That man, I'm a Christian now, and now I'm taking orders from Jesus. But Christ doesn't want to tell you what to do. That wouldn't change anything. That wouldn't do anything. Can you see that? That doesn't. Christ doesn't want to tell you what to do, He wants to be why you do all that you do. And the more Christ is seen and the more Christ is formed in you, you will notice very clearly that God is not giving you instructions. And even if he did, like he did in the law, like he did in the old covenant, it is absolutely powerless to change your nature. God's instructions only, only serve to condemn you because you cannot want to do them. But as Christ is known by the soul as the very life of the believer and he is formed there, then you come to find Christ is, the, is constraining and conforming you according to his own desire. His desire becomes your desire your will is conformed to his and you act out from your own will and it is precisely it is precise when you act out from your own will it becomes the the expression of his seed you still get to choose whatever you want to do but now you, what you want to do is constrained by your father constrained by the son who is your life can you hear what i'm saying The nature of our bondage to Christ as his body is not that he tells us how to live, but that his nature works in us by light, by truth, in such a way that we desire what he desires. We desire what he is. We become the expression and the glory of him, his authority. But see, back to my point about Satan, the darkness of the Adamic soul became the place where Satan could have his expression, where Satan could find uh, his increase, the increase of his seed. Now in saying that I'm not I'm not saying that every single human being is is possessed like the little girl in the exorcist movie I'm just saying that he has a place of influence he has a place of expression a place of deception a place of corruption wherever he finds the darkness of the adamic mind And in us those who have been born of God's spirit he obviously has no possession of our souls and he has no power of death over us at all but where we give him a place where we hold on to the darkness there he can influence and deceive and confuse and glorify himself and bring the increase of his kingdom in our darkness in our blindness where we give it to him there is a place a place where he can Blind our eyes and keep us from seeing the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's why I find this verse interesting uh, in Ephesians 4, verse 26 and 27. Paul's talking about not letting the sun go down on our anger and not giving the devil a place. Um, I suppose I I was thinking about this uh, not in my notes, but that the the phrase "Let the sun go down on your anger um it's generally taken to mean "Don't let time pass, don't let a day go by where you're holding on to anger, and I suppose that's very legitimate understanding of this it could It could also mean the sun going down on your anger could could be a reference to uh lack of light that in your anger you you lose the light, you lose the view of the truth. Either way, it, um, it it brings about the same result. It gives it gives the devil a place. The sun setting on our anger, whether that's referring to darkness increasing in us again when the sun goes down, or whether it talks about it's talking about you just holding on to that anger uh, over time. It, it could it could it could be uh, either one, and it doesn't have to be anger either it doesn't have to be you know it could be anything of self that we hold on to. Anger is just an expression of self. Anger only exists in our soul because we're holding on to ourself. Think about it. what is anger? Why does it exist? Anger exists because we're demanding something from others for ourselves whether those demands are legitimate or not, you don't really feel angry with someone unless you are holding on to your life. That's what anger comes from. It's the same thing with all the Adamic emotions that wage war uh, in our soul. It doesn't matter what it is. Lust is man's demand to take something unto himself. Fear is man's concern to uh, the possibility of losing something from himself. That's what fear is. It's all the same. See, it's it's all, it's all the same thing. It's holding on to self, holding on to darkness, holding on to something other than Christ, our life. And I said all that to say that it uh, it seems to me that wherever we are holding on to the darkness of the Adamic man, demanding things for self, holding on to self, holding on to ideas about God and and theology. Uh, and, that's the same it's another form of holding on to self holding on to our ideas about god and what he what he is and what he does and what he likes and what we what we want to believe about him it's there it's there when we hold on to his darkness his kingdom his place it's there that the enemy finds a dark place a dark Habitation, where he has freedom to move and influence and deceive and work his kingdom. You and I, who are born of God's Spirit, we have the reality of life, new life in our soul, that's true. But that life must be allowed to shine its light into every dark corner of our earth bound, self obsessed soul, or there's still going to be darkness where the enemy can find a place to abide. Where Christ's life has overtaken our soul in the light of the truth, there is no place for the enemy. Darkness cannot stand in his light, and that reminds me of um where Jesus said john four, in John fourteen thirty he said "I will no longer talk much with you for the ruling for the ruler of this world is coming, but he has nothing in me. He has no place in me, and that's true. there is nothing of Satan in Christ but there is a place for him in us to the measure that we hide from the light. And that's what we're doing if we're holding on to the Adamic man. That's what we're doing if we're stewing in our own anger or feeding our lusts or obeying our insecurities. See, all that's the same. And so Paul is admonishing believers here, in my opinion, in, in Ephesians 4, 27, to let the light Take that man, take that darkness out from the redeemed soul so that Satan no longer has his place. As we are transformed by the renewing of the spirit of our mind, if we put on the new and put off the old, Satan loses his place. But if we hold on to that man, if we hold on to the darkness where self loves to hide then we keep the devil's place intact for him. And we'll stop with that. Amen.